0: Section 7 of The Broken Shaft, Tales in Mid-Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Coogan, San Diego. The Broken Shaft, Tales in Mid-Ocean. Edited by Henry Norman. Riley M.P. by Teague Hopkins. 1. This is the story of a quiet man called Riley, who went down to a borough which nobody else had heard of, and told the people that if they would send him to Parliament, he would get them three acres and a cow apiece, and see that the country was governed by the light of common sense. They were a slow, pious people, who had no education to speak of, and as they had never listened to anything like this before, they asked old Mr. Deemster, who was standing by, applauding with both feet, what it meant. He said it was radicalism, and a good thing, too he said besides now you all want three acres and a cow don't you if there's any man here who doesn't let him go home the electors wagged their chaps like one man but none of them went home very well continued old mr deemster mounting the barrel so as to emphasize his words you all want three acres and a cow which comes to this that you've been radicals all your lives without knowing it more shame for you then i say to keep on electing that there sir supine lumpkin who has never promised you anything and wouldn't give it to you if he did the electors felt drawn toward riley from that moment and twenty-six of them formed themselves into a committee as deemster told them to and hired a room at the public and sat round a table with some beer in the middle and thought it out quietly the more they thought it out the better they liked it and the less quiet they became and when the landlord with a face like a beetroot came in and asked if they meant to go home that night or didn't they They helped one another to their legs, and hiccuped three Rileys and an acre, and their wives put them to bed with the first broomstick they laid hold of. I can tell you these were strange goings-on for Pulborough, and you would like to know where it came about that the people were deciding to elect Riley, whom none of them had ever seen or heard of till that night, and turn out old Sir Supine Lumpkin, the squire, who had lived among them all his life, and drawn his money out of the land, and spent it for the good of himself and his family this mr deemster was at the bottom of it all as i dare say you expected he would be and as far as that goes he was generally at the bottom of everything out of which he could make a trifle for himself he was a large bald-headed man but over and above that he was a pill merchant and had made a lot of money by mixing patent pills on a large scale i mean of course that the business was on a large scale not the pills for you could buy them in boxes of all sizes and upward according to the number you preferred to take once the pills were good for one thing or another so deemster said and deemster was good for a hundred thousand so people said i can tell you these were strange goings-on for porbo and you would like to know how it came about that the people were deciding to elect riley whom none of them had ever seen or heard of till that night and turn out uh, sir supine lumpkin the squire who had lived among them all his life And drawn his money out of the land and spent it for the good of himself and his family this mr deemster was at the bottom of it all as i dare say you expected he would be and as far as that goes he was generally at the bottom of everything out of which he could make a trifle for himself he was a large bald-headed man but over and above that he was a pill merchant and he had made a lot of money by mixing patent pills on a large scale I mean, of course, that the business was on a large scale, not the pills, for you could buy them in boxes of all sizes and upward, according to the number you preferred to take at once. The pills were good for one thing or another, so Deemster said, and Deemster was good for a hundred thousand, so the people said. For all this he was a frugal man, and might have been seen in his drawing-room window on fine evenings, mending his trousers with a needle and thread, because he had a saying that a stitch in time saved trousers, which might otherwise have gone to the bad. He had no more than the average modesty of some others I could name, who have made fortunes by hocus the population, and he held a poor opinion of people who had not got their money out of pills, or some other trade which had obliged them at one time to stand behind a counter with their sleeves rolled up, and tell customers that the smallest orders were attended to as carefully as the largest. Now, old Sir Supine had never made any money at all, but had had it made for him by his ancestors. So you can suppose Deemster had a very poor opinion of him. In fact, Deemster would not have cared if Sir Supine had been expropriated and his lands made over to him, so that he could have built pill factories all over the estate. As for Sir Supine, he despised Deemster "'because he had once taken a box of his pills before bedtime "'and refused to pay for them on the ground that they did him no good. "'He lived in some style at the hall with his housekeeper and his son Augustus, "'and people who owed him rent went round by the back door "'and thought themselves lucky if they did not leave some parts of their clothes with the dog. "'In the good old days, when men tippled and the church was in no danger, poor Borough returned four members to Parliament.' and sir supine used to send down on the morning of the election the names of the persons to be elected the votes of the electors were divided evenly between these gentlemen or they would have been if most of them had not plumped for sir supine to show that they knew on which side their bread was buttered the feud between deemster and sir supine on account of the pills was of long standing but it had lately been embittered by the squire's refusal to sell deemster three roods of bogland which he wanted to reclaim for the purposes of a vegetable garden. Deemster accordingly began to think the time had come when Paul needed a more generous representative in Parliament, and casting about for a likely candidate, he heard of Riley, a quiet man who wanted to get into Parliament, that he might mingle with patriots and use the privilege of a legislature to escape payment of his debts. So he invited Riley to contest Pulborough in the radical interest, and Riley... Who never declined an invitation came and contested it. He went twice to chapel on Sundays, and Deemster put something in the plate for him and On weekdays he visited the electors in their cottages and knocked his head against the wet clothes hanging from the ceiling and said he didn't mind it. Conduct like this was certain to impress a simple borough like Poleborough, and the electors said Raleigh was just the man they wanted. They wondered they had never thought of him before his cause was indirectly furthered by the indiscreet conduct of sir supine's son augustus who carried on as if he had only a nominal respect for his own and his family's name in probo they had a very well-founded belief in a future place of torment for people who did not attend chapel and you can understand with what a righteous hatred they would hate a pleasant fellow like augustus who always had terriers at his heels and drove a tandem of donkeys during church hours on sunday they wanted augustus to go to chapel like the rest of them for his soul's good and they thought sir supine would send him there if the family seat in parliament were threatened this is why they placarded the town with bills in favour of riley and the three cows and gave the editor of the radical paper some sherry to write leaders about the necessity of government by common sense sir supine heard about riley and his three cows but took no notice further than to instruct his tenants through the high-minded tory agent that he thought of doubling the rents at michaelmas however they all of them plumped for riley who was elected amid a storm of cheers and rotten eggs the real truth respecting this election is that if any earnest politician in Polborough was sober that night it was not riley's fault for he had said from the first that he would have no bribery and any one who liked to call for something to drink in his name might do so at every public in the town deemster was very well pleased with himself when the result was made known and so was riley and so were the electors who carried him round the town on a plank face downward while the disappointed tories followed howling and hit him with their umbrellas for it was raining but he was just able to call for brandy when he got to his hotel and he revived when deemster brought his daughter dorothy round to congratulate him on his triumph don't run away with the notion that deemster cared anything about riley or his triumph for he didn't but he was pleased in his large-hearted way to have been one too many for the squire dorothy however a pretty and modest girl not at all like her father was really in sympathy with people and delighted to think that they were going to have a farm apiece and cows and sheep to stock them and as for riley who was going to get them these by his own unaided efforts she thought him a hero and told him so in guarded language Riley was delighted at this, for he was in love with Dorothy for the sake of her father's extensive business, and when old Deemster had gone out to propose that the elector should chair him too, he took the girl's hand, and said that he had loved her ever since he had observed her frugal ways in the house, and her willingness to help her father more largely than herself, and this was the meaning he had intended to convey in every speech he had made. "'And was this the meaning you intended to convey when you proposed to have government by the light of common sense?' asked Dorothy. "'Yes,' answered Riley. "'For I think that is the way a man should strive to govern his wife. And I am glad you are such a sensible girl, and willing to be the wife of a man who likes peace and quiet, and who will have a good fortune if your father makes a handsome settlement.' She said if he really meant marriage she would take time to think about it, and he must please not squeeze her hand at present.' he seemed to like her answer and the same night he returned to his lodgings in kennington road london south-west very well satisfied with the turn matters had taken Sisupine so accused his son augustus of having lost him the election and if you had heard the elder man expostulating with the younger in the drawing-room that evening you would have thought the atmosphere was warm enough without the parlour maid needing to light so many gas-burners augustus consoled his parent by telling him that If any justice were still sold, something would certainly be done to a man like Riley for deceiving the population. Sir Supine said that in a matter like this money was no object, that Riley must be mended or ended, and that Augustus had better go to town and find out what he could about him and how much it would cost to have him interfered with. Augustus then went to London with this end in view, and took steps to let the tenants know that he disapproved of their independent conduct. He laid hands on all stray beasts and others, and put them into the pound. He stopped all paths on his estate. He enclosed all the commons. He set up stocks at every turning, and put into them anyone found wandering after daybreak. He sent the rents up fifty per cent. He gave everybody notice to quit. He pulled down the sign-post at the crossroads and fined short-sighted persons half a crown if they could not say which way it ought to be set up again. He imprisoned poachers in an outhouse and tortured them every morning in the following diabolical manner he had all of the magic arts at his fingers ends and with the help of the devil he had constructed an infernal machine like an armchair which as often as the untruth was uttered in its presence closed automatically on whomsoever was sitting in it he fixed the poachers here and read them the speeches of popular politicians and at every third sentence the machine closed on the victim and squeezed him until he howled again and again the people began to see they had done wrong in sending riley to parliament riley meanwhile had joined the other patriots in the house of commons and was feeling about like the rest of them for a chance to do something for himself he made a good start by rising in his place one night and asking the tory prime minister if he had anything to do with some fraud on a savings bank This succeeded in drawing to him the favourable attention of prominent reformers, one of whom sent him an invitation to dinner. Riley now saw that he was destined to rise, and noting down in his pocketbook all the distinguished Tories who might be insulted with impunity, he reckoned that he could secure an invitation for each of them if he would save his dinner money for the rest of the session. Gus was now in town reading the police reports and going every night to the theatre to find out what he could about Riley. While searching in this way, he remembered a friend called Ainger, who lunched at the Athenaeum, where they known everything. He went to Ainger, who was sitting in the window with some cutlets and claret before him, and when Anger saw Gus, he put his head through the window and shouted, "'Hi, Come have some cutlets! How's Riley?' For they had all heard about Riley and his unusual proposals. Gus explained that he hated Riley, and asked Ainger if he knew anything that would put the man in prison. Anger, who was one of the most superior men in the country, said that he had heard Riley spoken of as a serious politician, of an independent turn of mind, and just the sort of person to represent a borough like Polborough, which had never been promised anything before. Of course, this was not at all what Gus wanted to hear, so he finished Anger's claret and went off in a dudgeon. "'Go to Granger of the Guards!" screamed Anger, as Gus went down the steps. "'He knows everybody.' The difference between the Athenaeum and the Guards is that at the Athenaeum they know everything, and in the Guards they know everybody. Granger was just taking his horse into the park, for he was anxious to ride well in case of a war in foreign parts. "'Hello,' said Granger. "'What have you done with Riley?' for they had all heard about Riley and his singular proposals. "'Confound Riley!' exclaimed Gus. "'I want to spoil him. Do you know anything about him?' Granger knew everybody, but he did not know Riley, which was just what Gus wanted, for it showed him that Riley could be nobody. "'Go to Ranger in the house,' said Granger. "'He's your man. He'll spoil Riley for you.' Gus thereupon took a cab and drove the nearest way to Ranger, who was on his legs in the house, proposing to tax walnuts. As soon as they had rejected his motion, he went round the lobby to see Gus. "'Ha!' said Ranger. "'There you are. Riley's inside. Come and look at him. I was introduced to him yesterday, and he proposed I should give him a dinner.' "'He's the funniest dog. "'He has secured a night next week for a motion "'asking to have government by the light of common sense. "'Isn't it fun? "'He says that when he's carried his motion "'he's going to marry a girl called Dorothy, "'daughter to a bald-headed man "'who has made a fortune by selling quack pills. "'How's your father?' "'Now who is this Riley?' said Gus, "'when he had strongly stated his reasons for disliking him, "'the chief being that Riley proposed to marry Dorothy, "'whom Gus loved for her own sake.' "'What?' exclaimed Ranger. "'You don't know, Riley, though he says you all plumped for him "'and chaired him on the, a plank. "'I'll tell you who he is. "'Can you speak any foreign language?' "'Gus shook his head. "'Well, then, uh, I must tell you in English, "'but turn your head the other way. "'Riley?' Augustus turned pale. "'Impossible,' he said. "'How can it be all that in himself?' "'But he is,' answered Ranger. "'Chairman, committee members, honorary secretary and all.' He lives by nervous politicians who, but are afraid, will tell lies about them, Uh, evening newspapers. This, said Gus, is terrible, and you say you have not told me all. Neither have I told all. There is my poor old father, and he went on to draw a painful picture of the brave, high-minded old squire, rejected by his constituents and supporting himself on strong language, uh, scarcely a pleasure left in him in life except the goat. He has lost his rest, sobbed Gus, but the only place he could ever sleep quietly was in the House of Commons, and if you come to services to the party, he went on. Why, Papa never opened his mouth the whole time he sat there, and voted against every measure brought in by the other side. If he isn't a fit person to represent a constituency like ours, please tell me who is. Don't cry, said the kind-hearted ranger. Your father shall sit here again, within a month from today. I have told you that Riley— who is so unprincipled that he would borrow money from the Speaker this very night if he could, has secured a night next week for his motion to overthrow the country. Now listen to me, and Ranger went on to unfold a plot so dark and dreadful in its details, that unless I felt sure you were sitting near some whiskey, I should not like to repeat it to you. Augustus was a man of unusually strong nerve, but he trembled from head to foot. "'We shall want her help, you know,' said Ranger, jerking his finger in the direction where Dorothy was sitting in her father's drawing-room, sewing grey petticoats with red bands to them for old women in the town who had put their work-baskets in pawn. "'I am certain she will help,' replied Gus, "'for she has often told me she would like to do something for the good of the country.' "'That will do,' said Ranger. "'You can leave the rest to me.' gus went away full of gratitude he returned home by the night train and reached purborough the next morning as the milkmen were going out with their cans to the pump three he had some breakfast at the inn where his principal account was and the waiter was obsequious so was the landlord and so was the girl at the bar when he went to pay her his respects and so were the four foolish farmers who she was serving with new ale "'Gus had never known anything like it, for most of these people had been bitten by his dogs at one time or another, and they generally frowned on him. "'But persons whom he met as he walked through the town were quite as obsequious, and even stoutest shopkeepers climbed over their counters to be in time to pull their top-knots when Gus went by. "'The poor fellow felt quite nervous and went along swearing in a minor key, thinking they wanted to make game of him. "'The truth is, however, there had been a reaction. "'The people were melancholy.' and embarrassed by reason of the horrible fright the squire had thrown them into for he had been making things so hot for them all around that they knew he felt his rejection deeply and they asked themselves if they had treated him as he deserved seeing that times were bad and they were backward with the rent squire's men had been among them talking in a plain conservative way about the truth of things and their dependence on the family of lumpkin and when he went on to say that the squire meant to pull down poorborough at michaelmas and build shooting-boxes for the tory party who were coming to stay with him in the autumn, they began to see clearly how selfishly they had acted. As for the three acres and a cow, pursued the agent in his smooth, genial way, the squire thinks you would all be better off in America than here. It's a free country, that is, and if you supported the whiskey shops liberally, as you'd be certain to do, you might all be president some day. All the land hereabouts belongs to the squire, as you know, and next year he means to plant cucumbers within a four-mile radius of the hall. As for the government by the light of common sense, said the agent on another day, the squire thinks you might like China better than America, for if you get in trouble there, you can have your heads cut off without the expense of a trial. And I should like to know who ever heard of a government by the light of common sense. No cabinets have ever tried it here, and if they did, do you suppose the country would stand it? You have been bamboozled by a wicked radical, and if you want to know who the first radical was, you can get the clergy to read you what scripture has to say about the devil." If we had only known all this before, said the conscience-stricken electors, as they shook in their clothes, how differently we should have acted. They wished they could unlearn all their politics that Riley had taught them, and be back in the dark and happy days when they knew nothing, and trusted in the squire's assurance that the vote was of no use to them, and would see that they were kept in their proper station. During three days they had all hated Riley, and now they began to think meanly of him, and they thought the least they could do when they saw gus come home from london was to pull their hair at him and send their dutiful respects to the squire who was at that moment enjoying the agonies of a batch of liberal poachers to whom he was reading a patriotic speech by an under-secretary of state at every line of which the machine in which they were fixed crushed their bones when gus had made his father happy by telling him what was in store for riley he went off on a surreptitious visit to dorothy to whom he meant to propose marriage and get her consent to assist in the downfall of his miserable rival. They kissed one another affectionately, for there was an understanding between them, and Dorothy said, I know you think I have been flirting with Riley, and so I have, but it was all for the best. He wishes to marry me. I know he does, my honest poppet answered Augustus, smoothing her bright brown ringlets, and so do I. I know you do, dear one, said she, adjusting her bright brown ringlets, and so do others but i could not honestly marry you both i would not have you do it darling if you could replied her lover indeed i would rather you did not marry riley at all and so would i said dorothy and yet augustus pet he spoke so distinctly about the happiness which would attend our wedded life provided our father i mean my father could be induced to make handsome settlements but could anything or any one induce him to do that dorothy he inquired no augustus she answered with simple truth i do not think anything or any one could but let us put the case my sweetest singing bird whispered augustus that your hard-working and avaricious parents came down with settlements of a munificent even of a generous description let us suppose that he surrounded you with all that the tender heart of a woman could desire that you had everything in your slap-up style all round my hat down to the ground and up to the knocker in a manner of speaking Think of what a lot would be yours. Doomed to live your whole life long in the midst of unbounded and unbridled luxury, you would need to but ring your bell, and several servants would instantly present themselves to know the reason. Think you, fair one, that this would not be Paul. Would you not err a week long to throw something at somebody, and would not the sense of your responsibility to your inferiors restrain you and be an unmitigated nuisance? how different my little bubble your fate would be if you consented to wed with me my father hates you even as yours hates me and neither of them would give us a penny we should be compelled to borrow at a low rate of interest from persons who required no references how this would stimulate our activity how hungry we should often be and with what a pity this would inspire us for the sufferings of others and then when the tide turned as i dare say it might and we began to scrape a penny here and a penny there what joy oh my girl my comfort my pretty little simpering twippet a and my pole-star surely this is the life you would prefer ah my augustus my augustus my augustus she answered softly and if she had said less she could not have meant more my own my dewdrop she murmured he spoke rapidly though not expecting to have got so far in such a short time and if he had the license in his pocket at that moment he might have done with her what he would. But he wished to act properly throughout, and he said, My Pippinist pet, let us do nothing rashly, lest we come to repent it. Let us not be married till the bands have been called, and the moment the ceremony is over, we will ask the consent of our parents to our union. How good and thoughtful you are, Augustus, said Dorothy. Yes, that is just what we will do then he went on to tell her of the scheme which was to confound riley and the part they wanted her to play in it which she gleefully accepted what this scheme was i cannot tell you just now for here comes riley himself though why he has taken uh, to dressing himself in this conspicuous manner i don't know for all his bills are still unpaid and this is what troubles him he thought that once he had got into parliament to please deemster deemster would allow him to uh, want for nothing the fact being that deemster having discharged his grudge against sir supine would willingly allow him to want for everything Riley had never troubled himself about his creditors in his hour of need and now his creditors did not trouble themselves about him in his hour of prosperity if you think that the way of the world is different from this i have no respect for your opinion they said that he must pay them or they would make a bankrupt of him I dare say you have been in debt yourselves, and know what it is to face a thankless creditor. Four. We are now again arrived at the British House of Commons. It is a very foggy afternoon in the middle of the season, and if the house is to deliberate on anything like comfort, the lights must be turned on. By this I mean to say that, though it is only half-past three in the afternoon, it is very nearly dark a plain shabby man enters the house and gropes his way along swearing under his breath for he keeps hitting his shins against the furniture it is comparatively speaking only a short time since guy fawkes groped about in this way with some powder and lucifer matches thinking to keep up the fifth of november is this then another guy fawkes hideous but no who then is this mysterious stranger what if he be no stranger strangers are only "'admitted to the house under very stringent regulations. "'Why can't you say at once who he is "'and put us out of suspense? "'I will say. "'It is the man whose business it is to light the house. "'Ah, what a relief. "'See, he lights it. "'But for this man, "'the house would legislate in total darkness. "'Horrible. "'But it is his duty to light the house, "'and he has lighted it. "'He never fails in his duty. "'He has a wife and family to support. "'He is paid by the week. We now have a notion of what the house looks like on the night of a great debate. It was the night which Riley had secured for his motion to revolutionize the country in a manner already indicated. His head and his pockets were so full of his speech that the policeman on duty declined to let him in till he had submitted himself to be searched. He had some spirits under his coattails and some more under his waistcoat, for he wanted to impress the house, and they had told him this was the way to do it old mr deemster sat among the distinguished strangers in the gallery with his spectacles well up on his forehead so as not to miss a word it was this rich man of the people whom riley was most anxious to impress for if he succeeded with his motion he meant to ask deemster for the hand of his daughter and a blank cheque to wave in the faces of his creditors he went early to be in time for prayers and the speaker was affected when he entered the house with both arms full of his speech young and tender peeresses sat in the Ladies gallery and craned their beautiful heads for a sight of the man who wanted to govern the country by the light of common sense. The reporters with clean paper collars and their hair oiled sat in a row upstairs, and if you had seen them turning their ink pots over their notebooks, and sending off billets to the peeresses, you would have thought, as I often do, that the British press is an institution about which a good deal might be said. Crowds of people were in the street, and Riley's creditors formed a ring twenty-two deep around the house, for they had heard that, if he failed, he meant to go to foreign parts by the last train. Ranger, bursting with his plot, was watching Riley from the other side of the house. Four hundred and four questions on subjects which no one was interested in were got rid of, the number being fewer than usual that Riley might have his chance. How often do we observe that something happens which was not expected to happen, and plays the very mischief with something else, which ought to have happened. If anything unforeseen were to happen now, Riley might be prevented from making his speech. His political career would infallibly be blasted, and this story would not end as happily as it ought to do, if you consider the reason. If anything unforeseen were to happen now, Riley might be prevented from making his speech. His political career would infallibly be blasted and this story would not end as happily as it ought to do if you consider the reason at the moment when he was looking for the speaker's eye an attendant of the house entered with visiting card in his hand he gave it to the first member he came to and as it was fingered by one gentleman after another it grew duskier and duskier in hue at length it reached riley who would like to have repudiated it only he dared not for he knew the house had seen him change colour this was dorothy's card and she had written on it a note in pencil telling him to come at once and find her a seat among the ladies, for the minister's secretaries were trying to flirt with her in the lobby. "'What shall I do with her?' thought Riley. "'If I leave the house now, my chance will be gone, and Deemster will never give me a blank check. "'What will he do with her? "'What would any of you have done with her, if only someone would rise and take up the attention of the house for a minute or two. Ranger, who had never removed his eyes from Riley for thirty minutes or less, rose at this moment, and asked leave to make a personal statement respecting the Begum of Cawnpore, whose relations with the country were just then somewhat strained. It was a subject to which many earnest men had devoted some of their best and purest thoughts, and the house became hushed in an instant. Raleigh thanked God for the Begum of Cawnpore. this was not her real name, and she did not actually live in Cawnpore and rushed out, Ranger's attitude suggesting that he meant to speak for an hour and a half. "'But this ranger, though a thorough politician, was a very sly man, and when the door had slammed "'on Riley's tails, he said he would not occupy the house above a minute, as he knew "'the Honourable Member for Poorborough had secured this night for an important speech "'on the reform of Parliament. "'He made his statement and sat down on the member next to him, and the Speaker called "'on Riley. "'Riley did not respond, and when they looked for him, there was no one in his place but "'a great glass of gin water.' and a speech written only on one side of the paper, and two feet high. Riley, poor creature, was rushing up and down the lobby, asking all the persons whom he met if they had seen a girl called Dorothy, with deep blue eyes and a pink dress, this being the costume she generally wore. They had not. No more did Riley, though he spun around both lobbies in a twinkling, and revolved on his own axis till his head swam. The house began to empty. It kept on emptying, and when Riley came back panting after his fruitless search, He met the members pushing one another out by threes, fifteens, and thirty-sixes. He charged them. He said he wanted to make a speech. He struggled. He got mixed up. He was one man against six hundred, and they shook him up like medicine. How often do we think of the adaptability of the human frame to all the pushing, squeezing, kicking, and tearing that go on in the world? If our skeletons were made of anything but bone, it is ten to one we should not live above six years at the utmost if riley had died at this age his life might have been spotless and he would never have had the humiliation of standing on the floor of the house with some of his hair off while the speaker counted to see if there was a quorum for as soon as he got in and before he reached his seat he had begun to make his speech when a secretary to the treasury rose and said there was no house then the speaker got up and looked round some of the members of the government were sleeping on the front treasury bench and the leader of the opposition and three others were drawing lots for the estates of the nobility for they thought if riley's motion were carried that the country would be divided up into portions riley jumped up and down and said he would have government by the light of common sense or die for it and the speaker went on counting one two three and so on up to twelve this being the number of persons present now twelve is not a quorum and the speaker declared the house adjourned and sent the waiter for a cab it is no use struggling against constituted authority, least of all against the man whose business it is to turn out the lights, for you might be turned out yourself, as was the case with Riley. The next morning the Pearlborough truth-teller printed his speech at full length with cheers, and here, here, sprinkled up and down the columns, and said that no finer piece of oratory had been heard for some time. But the Pearlborough truth-seeker, the opposition journal, also came up that morning, described the proceedings in the house, and said that Riley had never made his speech at all. Riley's committee held a meeting at which some one said there was a crisis, and said that things must be looked in the face, and while they were abusing one another across the table the landlord came in with a face like a mulberry, and asked who was going to pay the drink bill. Then it transpired that all Riley's election expenses were still to pay, and they were heavier than usual, because he had said he would have no bribery, late that evening a man with no baggage to speak of and less hair on his head than he had been accustomed to presented himself at old deemster's and asked for his daughter's hand in marriage and a blank cheque on the ground that the country was in danger from a tory government which would have nothing to do with common sense such a government said the stranger a quiet serious man must be turned out with little delay as possible as there was nothing to prevent old mr deemster from turning riley out He did so with the help of his dog. The next day Riley issued another address to the electors, in which he gave them an impartial account of his conduct, and asked for a renewal of their confidence on the ground that Parliament seemed very well content with the present ministers, who ought to be turned out. He said he would at once apply for the Chiltern hundreds, and he did so, and got them, and a writ was issued for a new election. But when the day the election came, the only candidate was old Sir Supine Lumpkin, who got all the votes, and a few spurious ones besides. He said in thanking them that they might rely on it, he would not forget their recent conduct, and he had hired some new gamekeepers to look after the poachers. Augustus and Dorothy were married at St. George's, much to the disgust of their parents, and the electors expressed themselves willing that deemster or anybody else should pay riley's expenses provided they never saw him again 5 for they were and are persuaded that their place in creation is a humble one and they pray that they may be kept in it and they don't believe in government by the light of common sense or cheap education or free washhouses no nor in the march of events nor the irish and if one goes down there again and offers them three acres and a cow they will take him by the sleeve and lead him through the town past the pump the churchyard the quiet little ale-house and miss crump's academy and so on till they come to the horse-pond the company were grateful to the quiet man with the pince-nez for the hearty laughs he had given them and congratulated each other on the process of evolution by which they had at last secured a story without either ghosts or murders The company were grateful to the quiet man with the pince-nez for the hearty laughs he had given them, and congratulated each other on the process of evolution by which they had at last secured a story without either ghosts or murders. Their satisfaction, however, was short-lived, for they were betrayed into a political discussion very different in its character from the delicate humour which had provoked it. What was said, and who said it, may not be told here now that the incident has already become ancient history but if the novelist who knew little about english politics and cared less had not skilfully changed the subject in an athletico literary manner there would probably have been other broken things on board besides the shaft the eminent tragedian spent the next day alone and only one little incident broke its monotony after lunch he was standing by himself under the bridge when he caught sight of a couple right up on the bows of the vessel The two lookouts, in their yellow oilskins and long sea-boots, were stamping up and down their round on the forward deck. But farther forward still, in the very nose of the ship, the reckless young couple were seated, apparently enjoying the full novel excitement of their position. The lady was clad from head to foot in a long grey ulster, and a hat of the same material was tied closely down on the masses of her bright hair, but proved entirely unable to keep the wind from playing havoc with it. She was seated on a low stanchion, so that only her head was above the bulwarks, and exposed to the force of the wind. Her companion sat behind her upon the lower end of the great wire shroud, running to the foremast head, steadying himself against the bulwarks with his left hand, and with his right grasping the shroud above his head. As the ship pitched, the couple in the bows went up until the vessel seemed to be stretching forward into a great green abyss of swirling waters, and then a moment later they went down and down and the wave in front came rushing up the bows until it was within a few yards of them a yard almost a foot and the two crouched low and the man's hand slid gently down the shroud until it was just behind his fair companion in readiness to grasp her if the rushing water should come any higher several times he seemed to relinquish with reluctance the necessity of putting his arm around her waist it was a pretty sight, and the eminent tragedian was heartily sorry when the officer on the bridge caught sight of them, and instantly dispatched the boatswain to bring them back with a severe reprimand. When evening came, the appetite for fiction brought reconciliation, and with many expressions of polite regret that they had not met earlier in the day, the company drew together again in a sheltered spot on the deck. Little though they suspected it, the story they then heard was to be the last. It was this one. End of section 7, recorded by Paul Coogan, San Diego